Welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And in this podcast, we're honored to have as our guest, Judge Peter Lickman. Judge Peter Lickman, before he retired in 2011 from the Los Angeles Superior Court, had been on the bench for close to 20 years. He had been settlement judge in cases too numerous to mention. He was the head of the Mandatory Settlement Department at the Los Angeles Superior Court. From 2011 to 2020, he was a mediator and arbitrator at JAMS, and he's now at Signature Resolution. Judge Lickman, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm happy to be here, Howard. Thank you very much for inviting me. He is, uh, Judge Lickman is on the list, on anyone's list of the most respected, admired, and in-demand mediators in the United States. And today we are going to talk with Judge Lickman in a kind of master class on mediation advocacy, how to succeed. We're going to try and do this in three perspectives. First, the eternal truths about mediation. What has it always been? How do you approach it? Secondly, the changes that have been brought by technology, especially the use of virtual mediations. What changes do they make in mediation? And thirdly, we're going to want to talk about the current calendaring issues, new pressures for mediation and alternative dispute resolution because of calendaring pressures and what is happening and going on in the courts. Let's start first with how do you start in terms of thinking about mediation, Peter, when a client walks in, what should the preparation be? Should the lawyer start thinking, I'm going to prepare for the mediation, or should the lawyer start preparing the case, knowing that there may be mediation along the way, but essentially preparing for the trial? Well, in my opinion, I, I think the attorney nowadays has to do both. I think, you know, you go back into the 70s, I think the attorneys you know, pretty much prepared the case for trial, um, looked at their case, the last case, on the value of the case, and, and really just had a, a, had a tremendous focus towards trial. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think the case is brought in, and it's brought in, quite frankly, I, I think the percentage has shifted. I think the case is brought in figuring, um, you know, let's prepare the case for mediation, and if we have to go to trial, we'll go to trial. But I, 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 I'm almost positive now the attorneys look at the cases in terms of what could be the value that can be attained during mediation. Because in fact, uh, in almost every case, there is today a mediation that takes place. Is there a preferred time, in your opinion, to try and start the mediation at the beginning of the case as discovery goes forward while there's a pending motion for summary judgment? Is there any general rule about when the case is most likely to settle? I, I, I don't. You know, it, you'd be hard pressed to say there's a general rule. I, I just through anecdotally through my experience, and and I was in the MSC program, the Mandatory Settlement Conference program. Uh, my colleagues were when I said, "Do not send me uh, in case you have pending summary judgments." I'd much rather have the cases post summary judgment. To this day, I still have that preference. I, I, and, 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 and I'm asked why, and the reason is it's very simple because I don't want to hear the arguments. When I was even in the MSC court and on the bench, uh, the judges that would send me their cases while the summary judgment was pending, the only thing that happened is I would hear the defendants moving papers, and um, and in many instances their brief would be their moving papers just 
you know, stapled to a cover sheet. Uh, and the plaintiffs would undoubtedly be very, you know, miffed by this and say, okay, here's our opposition. There's no chance of winning that. So let's get down to brass tacks. And today, especially, I, I think mediation, um, council should really focus on what are, what are the points that they want to raise in terms of strength and weaknesses of their case and, and do not discuss summary judgments. Summary judgments, especially in the second district, are very tough to obtain. And I just don't think there's much mileage uh, to be obtained. And quite frankly, if a case is brought to me while the summary judgment is pending and then it, the mediation is not successful, but they re-engage post the ruling on the summary adjudication or summary judgment, uh, what in inevitably happens is the plaintiffs then claim the victory and the defendants say, well, it was just denied. There's no victory. There's no affirmative relief, which is technically correct, but it, it gives some momentum that shouldn't be, shouldn't be given. Uh, the timing as to the overall timing, obviously the closer to a trial date, the better and more success you're going to have. Um, California being on the West coast, they don't share the, the optimism of a pre media, pre litigation mediation that the East coast attorneys do. The East coast attorneys, it's amazing to me, but they, they, they take uh, pre litigation mediation, uh, very seriously and look at it the same way as if they were in litigation. I think the West Coast attorneys tend to view it as, well, nothing's happened, nothing will happen until something happens, and so therefore we don't have to do anything until something happens. So, But if I had my wish list, well, my, obviously the, the wish list is give me a case a month you know, away from trial, two months away from trial, uh, and, uh, and and the royal flush is give me a case that's a week away from trial. So obviously the closer to the trial date, I think you increase your chances of success markedly. And when are you just drawing to an inside straight? Well, I, I, I can tell you this. I mean, and, and probably, you know, maybe done 50 where it's in the middle of uh, uh, of jury selection and they say, can we, can we come in at five o'clock after uh, court? I, I mean, there's a hundred percent success rate at that. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I love that. You know, anytime they want to uh, take an evening session with me, and they're in the middle of jury selection, I'll do it in, 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 a, in a nanosecond. I think it's the best time to to settle the case, and the case is inevitably with a hundred percent track record. Do so. Well, there we are. At- close to the end of the process during trial. Let's go back to the beginning. Do you begin your mediations until you advise counsel and mediations and having a pre-mediation call before the first formal mediation session? No, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely against the pre-mediation call. I don't, I don't think it fosters anything. And the attorneys absolutely have to have a pre-mediation call with me. I'll entertain it. I don't like it. But all they do is tell me, uh, just want to give you a heads up on the case. Here's what the players are, and here's what we intend to talk about. And I inevitably say, but isn't that going to be in your brief? And aren't you kind of predisposing me to what you want to tell me anyway? So I, I, I kind of, I very much discourage the pre-mediation calls, and I'm probably in the minority with that. There are a lot of mediators that have a lot of success and do very well, and they swear by having a pre-mediation call. I do not. So, so the first, basically, the first information you get first uh, considerable information is from the mediation brief. So what do you recommend the mediation brief be to be most effective in going through this process? Yeah, that, that's, that's the golden question, in, in my opinion, Howard. I, I think the attorneys, if they've decided to go to mediation, they've chosen the timing to go to mediation, 
uh, meaning that it's beneficial and they think it's going to be beneficial for one side or the other, or both sides can view that it's beneficial. Uh, they should they should have their brief down to 10 pages. I mean, if you can't tell me what's going on in the case within 10 pages, um, then I don't think you've really got a handle on your case. And if you're spitting up 20 and 30 pages uh, on, a, on a mediation to me, then then you really haven't got any control over your case. You, you, you really don't know what your strengths and weaknesses are. You're just kind of throwing something up to me to figure it out. So I, I think a, a good mediation brief is a letter brief around eight pages long, going through the points, and that's it. And I really don't need an entire string recitation of the law. I mean, if it's in a field that, that may be a little obtuse, uh, that's fine. But it, for by and large, the majority of the cases are wage and hour class actions or employment cases or PI cases or product cases. Uh, the, 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 that's pretty well said. You've got to have enough trust and confidence in, in your selected mediator to know that that mediator is going to be familiar with the area of law. I don't think these briefs should be very long at all. And you've also got to have enough confidence to know that you understand the case well enough to condense it to its essential points. And that's really the process you're encouraging counsel to go through in writing the mediation brief. Absolutely. And I don't think they do it anymore. I, I, I really, I really am disappointed in the brief. I, I, I would say that you know, if I went back 20 years, uh, I think the briefs were, were well-written and concise. Uh, you fast forward today, to today, I, I, don't, I don't think the briefs are, are that well-written. And I, and, I, and I say that because I think uh, a mediation is almost kind of a knee-jerk reaction. It will just go and we'll, you know, cut and paste something together for the judge or, or, or something like that. I think there should be a lot more thought behind this. There's a strategy, there's a clear strategy to this. And I think the attorneys should communicate with one another before they decide to go to mediation and really narrow the case down. But, and also, I think what you're saying is that in terms of your judgment of the credibility of counsel, it's appearing in front of you, uh, that a thoughtful brief just adds to the credibility of the whole process for the lawyers participating than simply getting a brief that was put together uh, in some in some random fashion. Uh, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I mean, uh, the credibility is everything it always was um, for attorneys arguing any case in court, for attorneys trying any case. Um, and clearly, uh, in, in the in the mediation process where the attorneys are advocating for their case, there's a credibility factor. There's always a credibility factor. And I think the attorney uh, that uh, tells me in a brief, either side, I don't care whether it's plaintiff or defendants, but an attorney that takes on a particular issue and says, we concede this issue, we recognize we have problems with this issue, um, uh, that that attorney automatically goes up 100 points in my book. And when I'm ready to, after I finish reading the brief, taking my notes and ready to talk with the attorneys as the mediation begins, that's just phenomenal to have issues conceded. But once again, I, I, I regretfully say that attorneys are very loath to concede any issues, which should automatically be conceded. You know, it's so interesting. I will, I will tell you a story that completely confirms what you're saying that I learned many years ago in exactly the same advice. I, I started, my first job was clerking for Justice Roger Trainer, And because we both lived in Berkeley, we, we drove back and forth across the Bay Bridge together. And I will never forget the first day we drove back across the Bay Bridge after 
a set of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. It's the first set of oral arguments I'd heard at the California Supreme Court. And we started talking about one of those cases and one of those lawyers. And Justice Traynor said to me, you know, Howard, that lawyer thinks I'm an idiot. And I said, oh, come on, no, nobody thinks you're an idiot. He said, no, I don't mean he'd walk up to me on the street and say, Roger, you're an idiot. What I mean is I asked him a question about a weak point in his case. He knew it was a weak point in his case. He knew I knew it was a weak point in his case. He knew the court knew it was a weak point in his case. But instead of presenting it in a way that let us know he understood that, and you can do that without being disloyal to your client, instead of doing it in that way, he argued that he was correct on that point as he was in every other point in the case. He said that at that point, he lost all credibility with us. Because when, when you argue strongly for the weakest point in your case, you really cannot be effective because he said to me what decision makers, what the courts are looking for are lawyers that really enter into a discussion about what the right result would be rather than simply arguing every point as though they're correct on everything. So I couldn't resist telling you that after the same advice that you've given. It's such an essential point, such an essential uh, point. I, yeah, I cannot emphasize that enough. I, I cannot tell you that probably uh, I can remember six very vivid times where six episodes where attorneys have gotten up and argued that your honor I'm only going to address one particular point I'm not going to waste your honor's time I'm going to concede these other points and, and the minute that happens what attorneys don't realize is my ears go up and that attorney uh, he or she whoever's arguing they get my full attention my full attention because now they have just engendered credibility and now i'm going to pay attention to the issue they want me to pay attention to and that's going to be an issue that automatically tells me there's something there so now i can't emphasize that enough i cannot emphasize now that may be even uh, the way you're talking you, i get the sense that may be even more true in mediation than in the formal argument that i was talking about because building credibility with the mediator in terms of what you're looking for and what the case may be worth is an essential part of getting the result you want. So I, what I hear you saying is it may be even more important to mediation to establish credibility by showing a true understanding of weak and strong points. I, I, I agree 100%. If you bring the mediator into the fold, into your confidence, and tell the mediator, and, and I don't understand the resistance for this, and this is, this is still amazing to me, um, but the attorneys that are very successful in mediation with me say, Your Honor, look, here's, here's my problem. Here's what I think the value of the case is, and here's what I'm really looking for. Help me get there. Well, now you've just brought the mediator into your side. The mediator now feels a responsibility because that confidence has been laid at the doorstep of the mediator. And the mediator is now going to try and figure out, wow, I'm going to see what I can do for this particular side. I think all too often, uh, both sides uh, are play very close to the vest, don't want to let the mediator in on what's going on. And, 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 I, and there's, there's kind of like uh, an urban myth out there that, uh, well, don't tell the mediator what you're really thinking because he'll just keep cutting you he or she will just keep cutting you in half and half and take advantage of it. 
Well, I mean, you have to have trust and confidence in your mediator. If you think that's what's going to happen and you have no trust and confidence, then don't select that mediator. Well, but that leads to a very sensitive subject among both counsel and mediators because the counsel is not in the room by him or herself. Counsel is there with the client. And it may be, and this goes to relations between counsel and client, but it may be, unfortunately, that in the same room with the lawyer, if it's handled the way you're suggesting by essentially conceding weak points, that that may not have been something that was candidly communicated in the process of preparing the case to all the parties involved. And so that becomes a barrier to then at that point uh, becoming candid. Do you think there's any any issue that revolves around that? I absolutely do, but but I have, on the plaintiff side, there's two sets of thinking in this and, and two philosophies. I have a group of, of top-notch plaintiff's attorneys that don't put themselves in the same room as their clients. They actually ask for a third for a third breakout room, and they put the client there. Uh, I have I do have attorneys that have their clients there. They want them to listen to the opening opening salvo of the argument so that they can show the client that they're advocating uh, for their best interest. But then I have my own breakout room, and and I would say 90% of the time the attorney after the opening salvo comes in and says, okay, let's talk about the case. It can't present a barrier. There are uh, clients, it's not as many as you would think, there are clients who want to be involved in the entire process and do not want to have any separate conversations uh, and, and do not want to be put in a separate breakout room. But in today's situation, I think that's very, very remote, very few and far Let's pause for a moment, and then we'll talk about what communications between attorneys, clients, and mediators can help in both online and in-person mediation. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. Bail reform is one of the most pressing issues in criminal justice legal issues today. Join the Daily Journal and Journal Technologies on September 1st for an online webinar discussing the current state of bail reform, possible solutions, and what the future holds. For more information and to register for the webinar, visit the link in the description of this episode. I'm going to leap ahead to a subject to a subject because uh, we were going to talk about virtual mediations, and we'll do that separately. But now talking about this process of, of lawyers talking separately uh, to mediators and what that may involve, many mediators have told me that that turns out almost easier to do in virtual mediations, where there can be communications between counsel and the, and the mediator. Uh, on the telephone, for example, cell phone calls while other things are happening, uh, where there can be more candid communications that don't involve the difficulty of physical separating out from the client. Has that been your experience also in virtual mediations, or is that is that also a kind of urban myth that people talk about? 
I didn't have the difficulty in pulling an attorney out of the breakout room with his or her client and, and bring them into my breakout room and do it. On the, on the, on the Zoom or the virtual mediation, um, it's a little more difficult, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, um, and so I would uh, uh, tell the attorney, why don't you call, call me offline or here's my cell or give me your cell and I'll call you. And it, it's still, you can still accomplish the same result, but I, I actually find it more difficult on the virtual mediation than I did in the, in the live mediation. So it's, 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 I think, whatever any mediator is comfortable with. I don't see that as a is a big barrier nowadays, one way but, or another. But it's very constructive in terms of discussing this because, as we've talked, there is enormous value in credibility and candor. Uh, there may be difficulties in relationships in doing that with more than the lawyer in the room, but one of the techniques for the lawyer to deal with that issue, for counsel to deal with that issue, is simply to pull out and talk to the mediator alone, uh, where there can be, and you're recommending there should be, a great candor about what's happening in the case. So these are constructive suggestions for how to deal with could be very complex situations. Well, I, I think it's very important to do, especially in situations of, of what we call managed expectations for the client. I mean, I can't tell you how many attorneys say, uh, look, um, I need you to come in and I need you to uh, kind of explain uh, what you think is going to happen, your judicial perspective, because the client has a different set of expectations. And um, and that's, uh, that's I, I, I find that completely within the purview of the mediator and good mediators should be prepared and have to do that. You have to go in and, and uh, have a very good bedside manner developed and try and manage the expectations. I always start off with telling the clients, look, I, I, I bring two perspectives to this mediation. One is a judicial perspective. What do I think is going to happen? How would the case be managed? How is the trial going to proceed? How is the case, how is the, uh, uh, the evidence going to unfold, and then a mediator's perspective, wherein I tell the client I have to jettison the judicial perspective, and now I'm focused on, okay, how can the case settle, irrespective of what you think is going to happen at trial. That's a very important role of the mediator nowadays, which is to manage expectations. Well, in that in that context, is it sometimes valuable uh, to have discussions directly with the client, with or without the lawyer, with, with the lawyer in the room? So you talking to the client and not just the counsel about the case. Does that become a, a valuable thing to do? It, it, it depends on the timing and and how you set that up. Uh, for example, um, many times I'll pull the attorney out and say, "Look, I don't want to step on your toes, and I don't." want to bring you up short in front of your client, but here's some problems that have not been discussed, and I think they should be discussed, and I think they affect the value of the case. Some attorneys say, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm glad you addressed it with me. Let me try and handle that with a client. Or, or no, I'd appreciate it if you would deal directly with the client on this. This is like pulling back uh, many layers of an onion. Because there are times during the course of the mediation where you've got to find the appropriate opening talk to the client with the attorney in the room and to start expressing some problems you see with the case or what you think the value of the case might be. And I use this as an example. I'll give you an example. Obviously, if the opening demands a million dollars and the defense puts $5,000 on the table, that's not, no matter what the defense tells you to do, no matter what the defense tells you how great their case is and what I tell the defense, do you really think anybody's going to listen to me when I deliver a $5,000 offer? Um, if the case, let's just assume the 
the million dollar demand, a $5,000 opening offer, and the, let's assume, let's just assume for argument's sake that the case has a value of probably a half a million dollars. Well, you've got to, as a mediator, you can't be going in there and beating up the client on the plaintiff's side with a $5,000 offer. You've got to wait, bide your time to find the proper opening. So if throughout the course of the day, now, the dollar amount started approaching uh, $350,000, $400,000. Well, now you, now you better be starting to talk to the client, obviously with the consent uh, of the attorney. Um, and, and so the timing of when you address these issues, I think is critical, and that's based on experience with the mediator. But you can't, you can't uh, when you talk about managing expectations, which are central to suggest, uh, to, to success, uh, you can't do that in one, in one fell swoop. That takes place over a period of time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and that's the other issue, and I'm glad you raised this. And I tell this to, to it, this is mainly a lecture I have to give the defendants. They say, well, they should understand the, the weaknesses in their case. You should tell them these weaknesses. You should do this and this. And I look at them and I say, look, you have to understand, I parachuted into this case, you know, literally at the start of 9 a.m. And uh, uh, if you, I've got to build a bond and a rapport with the, with the plaintiffs and plaintiffs counsel. And if you think I'm going to go in there, guns are blazing and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is what's bad with your case and everything like that, that doesn't happen. You have to develop some kind of bond. And I'm certainly not going to marginalize the relationship between the plaintiff, him or herself, and their counsel uh, within a five-minute time period where the, where the plaintiff doesn't know me from Adam. So there's got to be some kind of rapport that has to be built up and some kind of credibility, obviously, that the mediator has to exude in order to take on that role and, and, and start, uh, you know, rendering some perspectives that would uh, take shape in terms of different expectations. This is, it's, it's very difficult to tell the defense that, you know, I, I just can't go in there and I don't conduct a teach-in immediately, you know. By the way, the plaintiffs suffer from the same type of situation, too, at times, where you sit there and go, look, you start off with these demands that are so high, it's polarizing on the other side. You, it's easier for you to sit in a room and become an advocate. I cannot do that. I am not an advocate. And I don't particularly care for the term mediator either. I think it's kind of a political term. But, I, I, you know, I'm an old-fashioned settlement judge, and I, I've got I've to give a perspective that I think is a, is a credible perspective. So I don't particularly take orders from either side to go ahead and conduct teach-ins and tell the other side everything that's wrong with their case. That's an interesting comment. Why do you think the word mediator uh, might be inappropriate or might not be the best word here to describe the role you play? You know, traditionally, if you go back, I know, uh, I'll tell you what, I won't date you, I'll date myself. But, I mean, uh, as the retired judges kind of industry kind of broke, started to grow and became a cottage industry, Everybody referred to the dispute resolution program. They didn't even have that term in those days. I'm going to retire judge to settle the case. And you're going to a settlement judge. And so I think what happened is, and I think this is a political side from, from the California Supreme Court, one, one justice in particular. So they chose a more neutral term, which is mediator. Mediator was, when I was growing up, was reserved for like union bosses and union leaders and NLR, NLRB situations. Um, it was never really used in litigation situations. Now it's a commonplace term, and it's and it's uh, used. They're going, going to this mediator, that mediator, and conducting a mediation. But 
I view myself, I hate to say it, as just an old-fashioned settlement judge. That's it. Well, that's an interest, interesting psychology about the choice of words because it may even start out that a client going to a settlement conference uh, simply views what the outcome and purpose of that is different than if the client is told he or she is going to a mediation. That's a very interesting point. One of the things about dealing with managing client expectations, uh, many other mediators have said, uh, maybe revolve around uh, talking, and the counsel can be very helpful in this, uh, talking to the parties about evaluating risk. I mean, even if you have a winning case, defendant has a winning case, there's a 70% chance of winning thinks the defendant. That means there's a 30% chance of losing. And if there's substantial dollars at stake, a 30% chance of losing uh, can represent a significant loss. Are there ways to get people to start to think about financial risk instead of legal argument, change the discussion from people wanting to argue the legal points to beginning to evaluate the financial risk involved in the dispute? Yeah, I, I think that once again, you're, you're dead on in, in that I try not to spend too much time on the legal aspect. A lot of attorneys go, well, it's a little too early to start discussing money. Why are we? Why, are, why don't we spend more time on the facts? I said, well, you already know your facts. And I, my favorite line to the attorneys is there's, there's no winning in mediation. If you win, that means it's a failed mediation. And congratulations, you won the mediation, but you have no settlement. So uh, I, I, I try and get I try and get to the, to the dollar amounts and the dollar valuation based on the risk uh, very quickly. Decided uh, to come to mediation. That's what you're looking at already. You're coming to mediation not to have a discussion over the legal issues. You're coming to mediation to have a discussion about what's it going to cost a for me to get out of out of this if I'm a defendant, or b what. What's it going to cost me in terms of time and effort and and emotional, more emotional, uh, uh, you know, import into the case? And what's my benefit that I'm going to get in terms of the settlement if I'm a plaintiff? This is such a vital point in terms of understanding what counsel do in mediation. Mediation is not the time, I hear you say, to argue the legal points of the case. Counsel know that. They know what the legal points are. The important perspective is to shift from who's right on a legal argument to what are the risks involved and what are the expectations for dealing with that risk. And and that involves moving away from the legal argument, which lawyers are so comfortable with, to the financial perspective of risk and cost, which is really what the subject of the mediation is. I, I would say, and what you're saying is that shift from arguing the law to evaluating risk is the critical shift in perspective and success in mediation. Do you think that's a fair statement? I absolutely do. And, and I think the faster you can get to that point, uh, I, I think the more successful your, your chances are in mediation. And, and what do I mean by that? If I'm still arguing this case, if, if both sides are, are so uh, wound to their various legal positions and, and, and they want to just continue to argue um, the legal points and how they're going to prevail. And we're doing that up until noon or one o'clock. Um, I, I don't hold out much hope for the success of the mediation at all. And, and here's the problem. 
that I see. You go back to the 70s, and even the time when I first started on the bench and I came on the bench in 1993, um, you had very little time. Attorneys spent very little time discussing the merits of the case when they truly wanted to settle the case. They got down to numbers rather quickly. But in the 70s, and even up until the late 80s, the attorneys could go in and try their cases, and, and, and you had many attorneys that were always very sophisticated and, and comfortable in a courtroom and, and tried many a case. And so they didn't spend any time uh, having to discuss how they're going to present the case or what they're going to do the case. They knew what they were going to do. Nowadays, the attorneys have so little courtroom time, even to argue the cases, the law in motion, the the, the, the backlog of the cases, the case management conferences, the status conferences, whatever you want to call them, the attorneys have very, very little face time with the judge or very little courtroom time. And the shorter the amount of courtroom time that an attorney has, the more frustrated that attorney has become and turns the mediation. I, I call these mediations nowadays almost de facto trials. And, and they're very anxious to tell their case and they're very anxious to advocate their case because they have not had any room to do that and they've had no experience to do it. And I think that has been a tremendous detriment to, to, uh, and, 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 a, and a very large impediment to, uh, to mediations as they go forward. You give me a very sophisticated, very well experienced trial hardened attorney and I don't settle a case where they, uh, the, the, the mediation is unsuccessful. They walk out and say, thank you very much, Your Honor. God, it was nice de dealing with you. Well, it looks like I'm just going to have to go try the case. And they're fine with that. The younger attorneys nowadays, they get really angry. They get upset. Well, how come you couldn't settle the case? Why couldn't this case settle? What happened? And you don't realize, you know, when I try to explain to them, look, the case wasn't right to begin with. And you haven't looked at, at all of the perspectives is what you're going to have to see and what you're going to be doing on the case. And that also leads to another problem that I see, which is absolutely endemic in, in these situations now in setting up the mediation. Uh, the attorneys rarely speak to one another. Opposing counsel rarely speak to one another. They, they text or email and they say, oh, and if they do, it's a 10 minute phone call or less says, hey, well, why don't we just go to mediation? And that's the last time they talk about it. When I go into a mediation after I say, okay, talk to me about your case, and they do, and I wait till they've presented their case to me, and I say, well, tell me how this came about. How did the mediation come about? I'm not really giving too much credence as, well, they wanted it more than we wanted it, or I don't really care about that. I just want to know what dialogue that was exchanged. Did you guys, did you guys truly... Um, uh, discuss numbers, had you exchanged any numbers. And now I'm finding the percentage of no discussions and no exchange of numbers almost in the 80 to 90 percent range. And I think that's a big mistake. But it, I think what you've said, it really uh, it is perceptive in terms of the psychology of lawyers. Lawyers spend time uh, building up a case, talking to witnesses, researching the law, do not get time in court to argue and make those presentations. And so much of the psychology of why people become lawyers is wanting to be able to make that argument. And so the mediation, which is perceived as a contest, becomes the time when lawyers feel they can finally demonstrate the work that's been done and make that argument. Rather than tell lawyers don't do that, 
do you think maybe there's a way to adapt, listen for a while, comment on the arguments, let lawyers take whatever time it takes uh, to feel they've had a fair, a fair say, uh, to say what their, what their research has done, and put them in a better mood to deal with the risk? Do you spend, is it worth spending time to do that on the legal arguments just to deal with the difficulty you're talking about, that there's a suppressed need to make the legal argument by counsel? Well, uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, yes, you're absolutely correct that, that for psychological purposes, it's nice to allow the attorney to advocate, allow the attorney to, to vent, and to allow the client to vent. But uh, and once again, it goes back to almost the, the start of where we began this particular uh, session, and that is uh, if the attorney has a very cogent and very well thought out analysis of the case, uh, it's extremely valuable. You've outlined the case. This is great. And let's go through the points and, and that's it. And, and it's, it's excellent to do that. I think it's very helpful. But if it's an attorney that's floundering and can't figure out where the case, what direction, how you would present the case, and is just getting, uh, quite frankly, learning the case as they're going through the mediation or getting frustrated with the process, um, then I, I, I try and shift away or pivot away from that immediately and say, okay, let's try and focus on the, on the value because then it's going gonna, it's gonna to deteriorate because the attorney just really hasn't got a, a, a handle on the case. And, and what, I, what I, I fear and what I see is the attorneys uh, tend to rely too heavily on the mediator. They tend to punt uh, to the mediator to make up these cogent, uh, not make up, as but to formulate these, these cogent legal arguments and be persuasive. And I think a mediator can relay strengths and weaknesses, but should do that um, from a litigation perspective um, if they've not been uh, a prior judicial officer or from a judicial perspective, if you have and say, look, here's, here's how I see it. And I'm not an advocate, but a, this is what I think is how it's going to be played out on both sides. So yes and no. I do, I do agree that, that you have to allow the attorneys to let them argue their case. They have worked hard on their case, and they, and they definitely want to represent their client well. The problem is, um, can they do that cogently? And have they done it? And have they prepared well for the mediation? And once again, it goes into preparation. But in terms of, of getting counsel especially, and through them the client to accept risk, might it not be necessary uh, to have some analysis with counsel about what weaknesses in the case are that counsel may not be aware of? Absolutely, but 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 once again, that goes back to if I'm going to be met with with either side, either plaintiff or defense, an attorney that is just not going to concede points and wants to argue for argument's sake and not going to concede the obvious, then I've got a problem. You're right. You, you have to discuss the strengths and weaknesses. There's no question about it, and you have to discuss the perspective. But it, it really it really depends on on uh, on the uh, attorney that you're dealing with on either side. It doesn't make any difference. I I just did one yesterday from the defense firm. I won't mention the defense firm. It was an excellent defense firm, and and um, always always. Uh, carries good credibility with me. And on one particular issue that we were discussing, the defense counsel said, uh, Your Honor, we have a real tough road on that one and we're going to have to concede it. Well, the mediation took in a dramatic shift 
and settled probably within three or four hours of that concession. It was it was it was just the right thing to do, and the attorney knew what he had to do and and did it. And uh, from that point on, now you can focus on okay, what where the value of this case is going to be based on that concession. And it changes the dynamics tremendously too. Uh, that happened to be defense counsel, but to go in and tell plaintiff's counsel, I don't want to hear the arguments on that. That's been conceded. So let's now figure out the real value. I was able to get to the value a lot faster because there were no more arguments. Before we continue, we'll take a short break and then talk about the benefits of getting clients to think about mediation, not just in legal, but in financial terms. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of August 24th. After a long fight with Assembly Bill 5, Rideshare could now take on the franchise model to avoid costly reclassification. An Uber spokesperson referenced two franchise models as possible solutions. However, many are skeptical Uber could succeed with this. Their reasoning? Franchises, like the gig economy model, have been hit hard by the coronavirus. Fellow rideshare giant Lyft is fighting hard for Proposition 22, which would exempt rideshare drivers from AB5. But one attorney said Uber is hurting the chances Prop 22 will pass by exploring the franchise model. It's been a tense week for renters and landlords, starting with a protest Monday outside the Stanley Mosque Courthouse. The protesters blocked the court entrance to protest the imminent end of the eviction moratorium and to bar landlords' attorneys from filing unlawful detainers. Later this week, a decision from the Second District Court of Appeals blocked landlords from forcing renters into binding arbitration in a lawsuit. The defense attorneys filed a motion to compel arbitration, but the judge sided with the renters, as did the Court of Appeals. Religious institutions have been challenging Governor Newsom's shutdown order in court. Catholic and Jewish schools claim it's a constitutional violation of their religious beliefs to disallow classes from meeting in person. In addition to the schools, Grace Community Church in Sun Valley is fighting multiple attempts to shut down indoor services. Attorneys for the 7,000-member church argue the county has not issued fines or otherwise tried to enforce the shutdown order. The county argues it seeks a judicial order to enforce the law, but the judge has so far denied ordering the services to stop. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. Are there ways to have the client, as well as counsel, in talking about the case, think about it in a purely financial way, uh, even even when the legal arguments are still being made and no concession is made. For example, if a plaintiff is offered X, many clients don't don't view it from the perspective as that amount is in their bank account as of that day. And so one way to think of the financial perspective, if you've demanded, say, to pick numbers, you've demanded a million dollars and 500000 has been offered, that amount is in the plaintiff's bank account that day. It's not just part of the process. The check can be cashed. And so the financial question becomes, if this weren't your case, would you invest that money in going forward in the case? Can the, can the question be framed in that purely financial way to make the people focus on the financial risk 
the investment decision, so to speak, because that really is the question. There's an analogous question for defendant, but for plaintiffs, that really is the question, isn't it? Would you invest the amount you're being offered in this case if this were someone else's case? Does that help frame the financial decision? Oh, I think absolutely it does. And, and But once again, I go back to this, which is it's a matter of timing and when you address that. Uh, because this comes up more so in the uh, wrongful termination arena, where there uh, are many causes of action uh, that the plaintiff can bring that will invoke FIHA, which means that if, if there is a finding by a judge or a jury to that particular cause of action, then, then the attorney's fees comes in. And so in, in, these become a little bit even trickier because you, you walk into a situation where the money on the table is probably better than what what the uh, what the client could get if it went all the way through trial, uh, but not as good as if the client wins thirty thousand, and yet the attorney can make a four hundred or five hundred thousand dollar app like a fee application. Those are trickier cases because you're you're then having to explain to the client, look, your best day is today. Your attorney's best day is down the road, and there have been situations where I've said that in front of the client say, look, you have to assess, can you beat that number yourself, not in conjunction with attorneys? And that's a tough situation. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, of course, it's sensitive between attorney and client, but you did mention the tax, some of the tax issues that may be present. And I think most people are, are surprised unless they've really uh, gotten current on what some of the tax risks are. I mean, in a business case, the client was maybe able to deduct the attorney's fees, but there are many cases, uh, personal injury and other cases, in which there may be a real issue of the deductibility of the case, depending on the type of case. But there are actually a risk, without getting into technical analysis or, or giving any advice, there, are, there really are risks in who pays taxes on the total amount of the, of the judgment of the settlement and whether in fact there is a deduction for attorney's fees by the client. Do you ever raise those issues or make sure they've been raised in terms of talking about the, the true settlement value? I, I haven't, I, I think, I, I, to be honest, I've only had it come up in one instance. The attorneys so far that I've dealt with are very adroit at that and they have raised that with their clients. And so I kind of leave that uh, alone, I try and not interject myself on that because I don't want to be rendering advice. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's a fine line. Obviously, if you think it's something that's going to be missed and should be addressed, that's, that's true. But but I, thank God, I've been fortunate enough with the attorneys that I've dealt with that have, uh, they, they've been very, very uh, much up to speed on that. And it's not been, that has not been a problem at all. But certainly one of the bits of advice to any counsel going into a mediation or a settlement conference or considering a settlement number should be to really make sure the tax consequences are understood, to, perhaps to engage tax counsel, but in any event, to realize that there are real complexities in the tax complication. And even when the number is agreed to, the way the final uh, negotiated settlement is documented can have a significant effect on that tax issue. So you've been fortunate in having counsel counsel who, who are up on that, but certainly that ought to be a key issue uh, for all counsel going into any mediation uh, to, to, under, to understand uh, those issues. 
uh, and and that's one of the things we want to talk about here in terms of the master class. How do you prepare? How do you do this? Is there any difference? Let's switch to the virtual mediation just for a moment. Do you think there's any difference in preparing for the virtual mediation where everything is done online rather than in person? No, I I, I haven't seen that. Um, I, the one anecdotally, the virtual mediation, I think. The attorneys are a lot calmer. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I don't get quite the uh, quite the edge uh, that the attorneys would have in a live mediation as opposed to a to a virtual mediation. I think it has to do with being in a in a different setting in a different environment and um, not having to fight on the freeway and not having to rush to the office or get rushed from court or anything. So it's actually had a very calming influence. Everybody seems to be a lot more relaxed in the virtual setting than they do in the live setting. No, I, I have heard that. I have heard that from so many mediators. It's almost the consensus. And one of the issues that people are looking at uh, and has psychologists have looked at is whether there really is a difference in talking to a camera rather than talking directly to another person in terms of how things are expressed and, and in terms of a range of emotions. And there seems to be an almost there seems to be a different relationship with the camera, even though you know you're talking to a person on the other side, a different relationship with the camera than there is, um, uh, the, 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 you know, than there is uh, when you're talking directly to the person. It's kind of interesting. I, I do think the, 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 the fact that you're talking to a camera is different, but uh, to me, it's, it's the environment. I can't tell you how many attorneys now are scrounging for places where they can have a quiet place to uh, to set up and have the virtual mediation. I can't tell you how many attorneys I've had go in their their children's room and if they're if their kids are away at college or whatever, or if their kids are young, uh, you know, it's a little tough. And this, I mean this sincerely, you're gonna laugh when I say this, it's a little tough to argue with the mediator and with the other side when you're got a whole bunch of stuffed animals uh, sitting on a bed that you're, <laughs> that you're in, that, in that bedroom with. So, it seems to me the environment is more calming than the fact of the camera. So it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, uh, I, I just noticed it immediately. The softer the environment, the more, uh, you know, going into the children's room, the more complacent the attorney becomes. It's interesting. No, that's a really interesting point because, you know, there's a lot of discussion now that with so many people working from home and a likelihood that the paradigm will have shifted, that we may go to hybrid uh, situations, hybrid mediations. Uh, there may be a continuation of a great deal online. There are serious discussions now about, you know, designing what amount to special media rooms and homes uh, with multiple screens and, and, and other things dealing with a lot of issues that simply make the whole online process more, more effective. So uh, there are a lot, a lot of people talking about how this environment is going to change. Yeah, I don't. I I I think we're going to hit a new normal. And uh, I talk about the hybrid situation since you mentioned that. I think that will clearly be the case. I think it will be the rule rather than the norm. Attorneys that that would normally drive up from San Diego or come down from San Francisco. Um, that's gone. I think there will be hybrids. In other words, the attorneys from San Diego will stay in San Diego, and I may have an L.A. attorney, and that L.A. attorney will may be in the office with me, but uh, or vice versa with the San Francisco attorney. I, I just I think there will be a new normal, and I truly believe that the the hybrid situation will probably be coming very very uh, uh, very very focused 
and very uh, very big pretty soon. Now there is another thing, another thing contributing to our discussion about what what's new and what normal is going to be, and I'm interested in the effect of the the court calendaring crisis. I mean, with the courts having closed down. Uh, with cases continually filed, with different courts uh, accelerating their coming back at different rates. Uh, have there been additional motivations with cases in court? Have you seen that to come to mediation at different times than, the, than, than counsel and the parties otherwise would have because of the effect of, of the court calendars and how long it is now going to take to bring so many cases to resolution in court? Once again, I think this is like peeling back onions. Um, it, it's got multiple layers to it in, in the sense that there are uh, um, cases that I've had now where uh, on the defense side you get, and I'm not trying to, to be pejorative on it, you get the pandemic plea, meaning, hey, you know, we're, the client is suffering through a very difficult financial period and the money is going to be uh, not there. And so whatever... Uh, we can gather together. The plaintiff should seriously consider taking it in terms of the settlement. So you get that. I, I had a very had a case with a very high end uh, restaurant that had just opened and only been open 11 months and was shut down. The issues concerning wage and hour violations. Well, okay, they only got to go back 11 months, so they're not that big. But by the same token, you you have a you have a restaurant that's not that's not generating any income. So where's the money going to come from? So you get that. You get uh, you get the other end of the spectrum, which is a lot of uh, defendants have taken advantage of the fact that uh, you know the case is not going anywhere. Trial's not going to be at least it's another 12 to 14 months, maybe 18 months, maybe 24 months away. So you know we're not really motivated to settle. And then you get uh, uh, many of uh, a client, uh, many mediations where both parties are motivated to settle. It's the perfect time to do it. Let's get in and get out and, and let's settle the case. You've been extremely generous uh, with your time and with your advice. We've tried to do this. I, th I hope counsel have learned or have heard in this discussion uh, some of the things that can be very helpful in mediation very helpful in representing clients. And I think counsel can also appreciate the candor of the discussion in terms of the psychology of what's happening in the absence of trials, the need to move to a financial risk analysis rather than legal arguments. And I think, and I think this has been helpful and I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I do wanna to add to those listening that if you'd like MCLA credit for this, on the website dailyjournal.com, dailyjournal.com, uh, you will see a link to an MCLE test uh, that you can take, and through the Daily Journal, you may obtain uh, the one hour of credit for having listened uh, to this to this podcast. Uh, if you are a subscriber to the Daily Journal, there have been numerous articles and news stories relevant to dispute resolution, to, re to mediation, to all the things we've spoken about. And you will have access to those, to bookmark, to research, to see. If you're not a subscriber and you'd like to become a subscriber, to have access to that, on that same website, uh, dailyjournal.com, there is a link to be able to subscribe. But with all that, we are very grateful, and we thank you for joining us for this tele for this uh, podcast, uh, for this discussion. And Judge Peter Lickman, I want to especially want to thank you for having taken the time 
uh, to share not just your experience, but your wisdom and your advice on how lawyers can best handle and represent clients in mediation. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, and and it's been my pleasure. So uh, I wish everybody uh, good luck in their mediation.